If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to open to the 22nd chapter of Luke, Luke 22. We'll start in the uh, 15th, 15th verse. As Southern Baptists, uh, we celebrate two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We call it an ordinance because it's ordained by Christ. And when we do this, it always involves family and community. Our community, community of believers here at Shades Mountain Baptist Church. One of the ordinances is baptism. And baptism, great picture as to what happens in the life of an individual when they receive Christ as Savior. They take that next step of obedience and uh, they stand before this church, and when they're there in the baptistry, it uh, is their testimony of, I've received Christ as my Savior. And then you'll see them go under the water as, as a person who's, who's a sinner that's asked Christ to save him. And when they go under the water, it's a great picture that they died to their, uh, to their old self. And when they rise up from the water, it's a beautiful picture that their sins have been washed away. And then when they walk out of the baptistry, it represents this new life in Christ that they are going to be living and when they do that, they do it among the community, among the church, among the family. There's a second ordinance, and it's the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is, is an ordinance that we partake, and we partake of this as a community and as a family. In just a few minutes, we will have that opportunity to do that. And the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus himself. And if you look in Luke chapter 22, it is when he's ready to have this Passover meal with his disciples. But I, w- I want you to listen very carefully at verse 15. Because in verse 15, he says, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I earnestly desire. I have been looking forward to this day for quite a while. And I have so looked forward to this day to be able to eat this supper with you. These 12 men, these disciples, you men that for about three years I have poured my life into you and you have followed me. And we are a family. We are a community. And it's with you guys. I've not invited anybody else in. It's with you guys. And I earnestly desire to do this. Most likely, Jesus has already had a couple of Passover meals with them. You did this once a year. This is about their third year together, so maybe they'd already done some together. But this one was going to be unique and different. Because in this one, he was getting ready to give him a whole new meaning of what the Lord's Supper was all about. And he comes to verse 19, and in verse 19, and it says, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when he got the bread and he broke it, he says, you know, men, I I know we've, you've, every time you've taken this Passover meal, you remember the story from the Old Testament, the Passover story, and, and how the, the blood of the, of the lamb was, the animal was shed, and put over the doorpost and the death angel came and it passed over and, and uh, all the firstborn were spared uh, there in Egypt who had the blood over the doorpost and, 
Uh, you remember that, that uh, they said that you were to eat the meal that night and eat with unleavened bread because you didn't have time for the bread to rise because as uh, soon as the death angel came, Pharaoh's going to say, you guys pack up and get out of here. And, but what I want you to know is that when you think about the bread now, I want you to think about my body, which is getting ready to be broken on the cross. And this is completely new to these men. I just want to let you know that and every time we eat of this, you break the bread, you always think about what's getting ready to happen. My body, the scourging that I took, the crucifixion that is about to take place. And then he came to the cup, and in verse 20, he says, And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. During a Passover meal, they would drink of the cup at different times, but then the very last one, he says, this one represents my blood, which is being poured out for a new covenant. Now, for these men, trying to think, what do you mean new covenant, old covenant? Well, following the deliverance of the Ten Commandments, when Moses went up on the mountain and God gave him the Ten Commandments, when Moses comes back, there is a, a giving of the covenant. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the left, to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. It is not the prettiest passage of Scripture, but it's a very descriptive passage of Scripture. Exodus 24. If you start in the fourth verse, it is when God is confirming the covenant with all of the people. And it says in verse 4, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And then Moses took half of the blood and he put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. They took all of these words, these commands that God gave them. They did the sacrifices of the animals. They took all the blood. And he took the blood. He took half of it and threw it on the altar. Then the other, he throws it on the scroll. He throws it on the people. And he says, we have agreed that this is a covenant between man and God. And that covenant is, these are all the things that you are to do. You're to keep all these laws. That was impossible, though. And so we had to continue to have a sacrificial system because they didn't keep the law. It was impossible for them to do that. And they had done that for all of these years. And now Jesus stands before these disciples with this cup and he says, this cup represents a new covenant which is being poured out for you. And in this covenant, Jesus says, I'll handle everything. I'll handle it all. I've lived a perfect life. I've met every requirement of the law. I will be your sacrifice. I will go to the cross and I will die for you. And my blood will be poured out for you. 
Now, when you read that and you think about that, this old covenant was launched by blood for two main reasons. Number one, God wanted them to see the seriousness of sin. And the second of all is he wanted to remind them that the penalty of sin is always death. So always in their mind, they wanted to understand your sin is serious and that the penalty of that sin, the payment of that sin is going to be death. Our salvation, <clears throat> excuse me, our salvation now rests on an infinite ocean of the blood of Christ because he has poured out his blood for us and that blood covers our sins. And so when Jesus had this dinner with these disciples, just like he said in verse 19, and whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So that every time they partook of this ordinance, they were always to be thinking of what Christ had done for them. And at the same time, to be thinking that one day he's coming back and have that expectation for the future. And so we at this point in the service are going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, let me give you just a couple of, of instructions for you. This is open to all people who have made decisions for Christ. Now, if you have ever come to a point in your life where you've recognized your lostness and that only through Christ can you have salvation, some of you may say, I've been born again, I've been adopted in the family, I've had a salvation experience, praise the Lord, we're excited for you, you're a part of the family, you can participate in the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be from the state of Alabama. Uh, you can, as long as you're a believer, we want you to participate. But there's some of you out there that say, Danny, just what you've talked through is pretty foreign to me, and I've never done that. Well, in just a moment, when we pass the elements, I would just encourage you to just go on and pass the tray and don't take an element. And I will explain those elements. And then just be listening and, and talking to God and listening to his voice. Because there's a reason why you're here today. And God is wanting to get your attention. And there's nothing more he would rather do today than to enter into that relationship with you. And so I would pray that that could take place even as we go through this time of the Lord's Supper. And so our ushers, I'm going to ask you at this time if you will come and, uh, and prepare uh, to be serving of the, uh, of the elements. And as the ushers are coming to, to serve the elements... Let me give you again another uh, point of reference. Once you receive the tray, if you'll just take out the element and then hold on to it. There's a wafer and, and there's some uh, juice there. Just hold on to that. And as you hold on to it, we are going to have a song. And as we sing the song, I want this to be a time of reflection and a time of prayer between you and the Lord. And for you to remember the sacrifice of what Christ has done on the cross, but at the same time, Say, God, where is my life in alignment with you? And that's where we're always supposed to come. Whenever we come to the Lord's table, it is always a time of retrospection and a time of, Father, how are we doing in our relationship? And if there's some things that need to be confessed, some things that need to be pledged to him, this is the time to do that. And take those moments. And then once you feel like your heart is ready, We'll take that next step, and we will go through each of the elements. So let me lead us in a word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your son Jesus and we thank you for the sacrifice that's made on the cross. And we thank you that we have an opportunity in our worship service uh, to be able to express that remembrance through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. May you speak to each one of our hearts. May we have our focus on you and on your son. May you clear our minds of anything else that may be competing with attention at this time. And may we focus on you, your sacrifice, your gift of grace, and your call to discipleship in our lives. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scripture said that that uh, night as they were there in the, uh, in the upper room and uh, were partaking of the meal, as Jesus took the bread uh, and he broke it, he then told them uh, that they were to eat that because it represented his body, which was to be broken for them. They continued on the meal. And actually, there were conversations that were going on around the table. When they got near the close of the meal, they came to that last cup. And when they came to the last cup, Jesus again looked at that, and he said that uh, this is the cup of the uh, new covenant. It's a new covenant that will be set up with you, and it will represent my blood, which is being poured out for you. When you read about the Lord's Supper, it's in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as soon as they finished, it says they sang a song and then they went on to the Mount of Olives and up to the Garden of Gethsemane. However, when you look at the book of John, the book of John covers this discourse as to what happened in that, uh, in that upper room. And then when they finish all of this teaching, you then you run into chapter 17 in which Jesus stops somewhere between leaving the upper room and getting to Gethsemane. He stops somewhere else. Some believe it may have been the temple. But there's somewhere where he stopped and he lifted up a prayer. Some of your Bibles have the high priestly prayer. Some even call it the Lord's Prayer as to where he prays. And so I want you to open up your Bibles to John 17. John 17. And in this passage, this is before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, that's when he begins to pray and he asks his disciples to pray with him. And, you know, they fall asleep and he says, could you not have prayed with me for at least this hour? And then he was arrested. So this prayer that he's praying is probably less than two hours before his arrest. And in this prayer, it's really broken down into, into three areas. He starts out praying for himself. And it says in the first verse, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him getting ready to give eternal life, the offering of eternal life, because he's getting ready to die on a cross three days later. God's going to raise him from the dead, conquer sin, conquer death, 
opportunity for any person who believes in him to have eternal life. But then look what he says. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Look at that third verse. This is eternal life. When you think about eternal life, and in fact, choir, if I'd done a poll with you and I say, first thing you think about when you say eternal life, you think of heaven living forever. But what Jesus says is, this is eternal life. It is to know God. It is to know God. And it doesn't mean that we wait till we die and get to heaven and say, okay, God, I'd like to learn a lot about you. It starts right now. It starts the moment of salvation is when you are to know God. And then he says, I have done the work. I've accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Now, those are two things that I think for every one of us as believers that we should desire. That is to know God, to experience him, to know him as our comforter, as our refuge, as our savior, to intimately know who God is, and then to find out, God, what is the will for my life? What is it that you are doing that you can use me to get that accomplished. And when my life ends, I would love to be able to say, those are two things I accomplished. No God did the work that he called me to do. Now, just a little bit of a commercial. Next Sunday, we will start a series on experiencing God based off the old the Henry Blackaby study that a number of us went through years ago. As we look at the seven realities of how do you know God and understand his will. Of what it is that we are supposed to do in our lives. It can transform us. It's exactly what Jesus was praying to the Father. And that is, my desire, Lord, is that they would know you. And I've accomplished the work that you called me to do. Well, then in verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. He prays for their protection. He prays for their sanctification. Uh, he prays for the joy to be in their life. And he says, God, look after these men, protect these men, give them the joy, uh, give them unity, and all these things. And then he closes out his prayer by praying for you and for me. He prays for all future believers. Now, you've got to put this in perspective. This is not Jesus is praying a prayer somewhere in the middle of his ministry. This is Jesus praying a prayer to the Father within maybe an hour and a half of his arrest. Because when he gets to Gethsemane, we don't know so much what the words are except just a few sentences of if there's any other way for this cup to pass, let it pass, but otherwise your will be done, not mine. But we know the words that he prayed right here. And he's praying for the future believers. He's pray, praying for the church. And this is the burden that is on Jesus' heart before he goes to the cross. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that means the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. God, I'm not just praying for these, uh, these disciples but for everyone that hears from their word, from the church that is formed, I am praying for believers from this point forward. He said, this is what my prayer is. And so I look at that and I say, my goodness, what is he, 
what's he going to be praying? There's only a few verses, so it must be pretty powerful. What is the burden of Jesus' heart? What is it, this last thing that he's going to ask the Father before he goes to Gethsemane? What is it that he is so concerned for you as a believer and for us as a church that as he's thinking of the cross, he's thinking of all these things that are getting ready to happen, this is on his mind and this is on his heart and this is what he prays to the Father. Verse 21. See if you notice anything that repeats itself. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Anything jump out at you in there? One. All right? That we may be one. That we may be one. That we may be perfectly one. The burden of Jesus' heart that he is praying that affects us 2,000 years later is unity is unity. The burden of his heart is that they may be one. And this unity implies both a horizontal dimension and a vertical dimension. They may be one as, Father, you and I are one. There's a vertical dimension to where God's prayer, Jesus' prayer, is that we would be one with the Father, is that we would have a relationship with God that is as tight as the Father and the Son. That's amazing. Lord, may they be one, the Father and the Son. May we have that same oneness. Okay. I'm going to share something, try to explain something to you. You just hang on there with me, okay? You ready? Okay. He talks about there's a oneness with the Father and the Son. Now, we believe in a Trinitarian view of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So there is this oneness of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. A lot of people have tried to understand it, tried to explain it. There was a 7th century Greek theologian who used a word called perichoresis. It's a Greek word. Peri means around. Choresis sounds like the word choreography. It means like to dance around as in a ballet, choreography. He says the Trinity is like perichoresis. It is as people are holding hands and are dancing in choreography. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit, that they're just having little fun times up there. What it means is, is that as they do this, there is a community and there's a unity among them. 
And that as they are doing this, you can see that there's a closeness and there's this intra-Trinitarian life that's going on to where they depend on each other. They are distinct, but yet they love each other and they, and they are energized each other. And there's an incredible life within that group. And so it's just not a sterile God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. No, there's an energy there. There's a life there as they feed on each other. And it's, it's the picture of, of just sitting around a table in community. As you sit around in community in a table, you share love with each other. And even though you're distinct, you're still one because you're one with, with that person because you're in unity and you're in community. Jesus says, I want these believers, future believers, to be one even as you and I, Father, are one, even as we are as a trinity. And so what his desire is that the believer is to be caught up in the life of God himself, to be energized with his life, and then to take his energy and unity and share that with others. See, that's a part of what becoming a Christian is. It doesn't mean that you just become a Christian and then, hey, good luck, I hope everything works out well. God's Spirit comes inside of us. And when God's Spirit comes inside of us, then we are to be caught up in the life of God. And just as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there's an energy within it, that same energy is to come out through our lives. Because we are children of God. And he says, I pray that they would be one. And Lord, he says, I want them to be one in that relationship with us. And that is the vertical dimension. But then there's a horizontal dimension. When he says, I pray that they would be one, it means they need to be one with each other. And they need to be one with other believers and with all believers. We get caught up in the energy of being a, a part of our relationship with God, but it doesn't stop there. It then is translated to being one with one another. And there needs to be a oneness in our relationships here in this church. There's one in our relationships with families. There's one in relationships with other believers, not just here, but all around us. There is to be a oneness. He prayed this three different ways in just those three verses. May they be one. May they be one. May they be perfectly one. Why is that so important? He says, may they be one, look what it says at the end of verse 21, may they be one so that, this is the purpose, the world may believe that you have sent me. That the world may believe that you have sent me. Through this oneness of love, the world would know that God truly sent Jesus and that he loves believers, he loves his only son. Jesus is appealing for the unity of all future believers so that they could clearly proclaim the evangelistic message. Does this surprise you? My thought is if Jesus has got one shot to pray for believers and to pray for the church, why didn't he pray for numerical strength? Why didn't he pray for financial stability? Why didn't he pray that we would build great cathedrals? Why didn't he pray that we would have clever evangelistic methods? He didn't pray any of that. 
He's prayed one thing, and he prayed it three times, that they would be one, that they would be one, that they would be one. Because what Jesus knew is that architecture will come and go. Doesn't matter if you got marble walls or stucco. Music will change. Doesn't matter if you got organs and pianos or drums and guitars. Doesn't matter if you wear three-piece suits or no ties. Doesn't matter if your music is soft or your music is loud. Doesn't matter if your programs are a bunch or you're going to do simple church. All that's going to change. But there's one essential, that you be one, that there be unity. Because when he's looking at the message that needs to be carried down throughout the ages, what the world has to see is a unified church. And if they see love and unity, they will believe that God is love. If they see hatred and division, they will reject the message of the gospel. And we need to make sure that that witness is true and that mission is loving. The mission of the church has two hands, proclamation with words, proclamation of relationships. At Shades Mountain Baptist Church, I have the primary responsibility to be the proclamation of words. It is my responsibility to open up God's word, preach God's word, feed you God's word so that you can take that word, hopefully through that, that God's spirit speaks to your heart, Changes are made in each of our lives. Direction is given. Comfort is given. Challenges issued. And we move out into the world ready to get after it. That's the proclamation of the word. And it's verbal. But then there's the proclamation of relationships, and that is visual. And that is what the rest of the world sees. And when you walk out from this place... The rest of the world will see what did that message do in your life. Did it enhance your life? Did it change your life? Or are you still the same person that you've always been? Every believer is a witness. Once you walk into this place, you will either enhance the evangelistic message that goes out, or you will hurt that message. The biggest barrier to effective evangelism, according to the prayer of Jesus, are not outdated methods of evangelism or inadequate presentations of the gospel. The biggest barriers to evangelism are gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, unforgiving spirits, roots of bitterness, failure to appreciate others, preoccupation with self, greed, and just flat out selfishness. And if we as believers and as a church embrace those things and say, this is who I am, this is the way I'm always going to be, then you are pouring cold water on the evangelistic message of Jesus Christ. I don't care how eloquently it can be preached from this pulpit, I don't care how powerfully it can be sung from here, but if you walk out of this place and you act and live like a person who has no love of Christ in you, you're just destroying the message. 
And don't call me and complain to me. But, well, I don't know why more stuff happened or so. And I won't come and complain to y'all because I look at my own life. I said, Dan, there's so much more I can be doing. But when we look at ourselves and we hear the stories, and I have, I mean, my heart goes out because a number of you, you come in and you pour your hearts out to me and, and, and what's going on in, in lives. And, and I mean, the tears are shed over, over just what's going on in life. But Jesus says that we are to be one. And that means that this is a family that when you're going through those hard times, we need to be able to put our arms around you and we are to love you and we're to walk with you through that. But oftentimes, somebody goes through tough times, we seem to kind of turn our backs on them. Oh, man. And then we lose the whole power of the gospel. You see, Jesus, when he said, I'm praying that it will perfectly be one, that they'll be one, that they'll be one. That means that as a, as a family, as individuals, we need to be one with God and we need to be one with each other. Because there's some of you that will walk into this worship center and some will sit over here because they don't want to intersect with some folks over here because you're at odds on some things. That doesn't need to be that way. I don't need to be that way. I mean, that's where, where relationships, I mean, sometimes you just got to swallow pride and say, I, I'm just going to come to you and say, I was wrong and ask you to forgive me. Or someone that every time someone says, how's your day? You say, it's great. It's great. It's great. It's great. And it's not great. And you know it's not great. There may need to come a time where when someone asks you, and you feel like someone you can really trust, you just walk up to them and say, it's not great. And if someone ever says that to you, don't sit there and pat them on the back and say, hey, hope it gets better though. Take the time and say, can you tell me about it? Let's just go over and sit down and let's just talk. You're the family. May we be one May you know that whatever you're going through and whatever you're hurting with, that someone is here and they will listen to you and they will say, hey, I care for you. Let's pray about it. Let me see if there's anything else I can do to help you. It means, it must mean a lot because Jesus said, I pray that they be one. I pray that they be one. So what does that mean about all those other things? Does it matter about the kind of way our building looks? Yes, it does. Does it matter about kind of what music we, do, we use? Yes, it does. Does it matter about what evangelistic methods that we use? Yes, it does. Does it matter about how we dress? Yeah, we, we need to dress nice. All these kind of things. These are issues that we need to talk about and discuss and make sure it fits in perfect with our culture to be able to reach our culture. All of those are important. But oneness and unity is essential. And Jesus said, I pray that you would be one. He didn't say everybody would agree with everything. He didn't say that we'd all just be little clones on that. Not at all. He says there's discussion. That's great. But when it comes down to it, we are one. And that's when we're strong. Just like the strongest marriages are not the ones where they always agree on everything. There are times of disagreement. 
There are times when one sees it one way, one sees it another way, but the healthiest marriages are the ones that they have those discussions, and uh, sometimes they get a little tense. It can happen, but yet you always know you're on the same page. And when it's all said and done, we come to a decision, we love each other, and we head in the same direction. Same thing with church folks. And Jesus says, the word needs to get out. Lord, I so much want people to see the glory of God. I cannot wait. In verse 20, uh, 24, 25, 20, I cannot wait for, uh, for them to be able to see my glory, your glory in heaven. But while we're right here, may they be one. May they be one. May they be perfectly one. It must be important. The way I'm going to close the service today is that in just a moment, I'm going to have a prayer. When I have a prayer, I'm going to ask you to stand. After we stand, there's a song that our choir is going to sing. It's called The Power of the Cross. The Power of the Cross. And our altar is going to be open. And if there's anything that you say, when I hear that and I've heard your message, I know either there's something in my heart or, Lord, I know there's someone else that's struggling with this. And I just want to pray. This altar is open. There may be individuals, there may be singles here, there may be married couples, there may be kids, maybe students. It's up to you. But if something in this is God's Spirit has resonated in your heart and it says, I got to deal with this. There may some, be some of you that need to walk across a few pews and just go embrace someone and say, I am so sorry. I mean, this has just dragged out too long. I'm sorry. And get that unity and get that oneness. Until there is a oneness and a unity within the body of Christ, our world will see no difference. But when there's that unity and then someone is sharing a message of Christ and how it changes a person's life, all they have to do is look to you as the messenger and say, man, I'm seeing it lived out right here. I need to know more about that. It must be important because it's exactly what Jesus prayed. I want to ask you to stand. Heavenly Father, we just preach your message is to hopefully to preach your son and to know just hours from going to the cross physically, emotionally, spiritually, a pain that none of us can imagine in the midst of just a couple of hours before all of that was going to transpire three times he prayed for us and he said be one Lord I pray that they would be one I pray that they would be one I pray they'd have unity so Lord that's our prayer today speak to our hearts if there's any areas that we need to straighten out with you, man, 
Don't let us wait. Let it be today. And once we've taken those steps towards unity, may we go out from this place to do exactly what your word said so that others will hear and know the great love of God. For it is in Jesus' name we pray.